This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Wisconsin's congressional delegation are speaking out on gun reform after the mass shooting at a Texas elementary school and a Buffalo grocery store. Wisconsin Public Radio reports Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat, called the shootings part of a public health crisis and expressed support for gun reform. Meanwhile, Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican, called on the need for safety measures in schools and blamed the secularization of society for recent events. Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher said he was grateful for law enforcement and Democratic Congresswoman Gwen Moore spoke as a mother in support of gun reform. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says he's not ruling out any candidates for the next member of Wisconsin's Election Administration Agency, reports the Associated Press. That comes after the abrupt resignation of Commissioner Dean Knudsen from the Wisconsin Election Commission yesterday. The bipartisan agency gives direction to local clerks on how to administer elections and is responsible for certifying election results. Newton says he's resigning because of political pressure from the GOP. He's defended the legitimacy of the 2020 election, saying that Donald Trump's loss in Wisconsin was not due to election fraud. The next commissioner will be appointed by Republican Assembly Leader Voss. He tells the Associated Press that he's looking for someone who will entertain the notion of election decertification. Now, that's in contradiction to Voss's earlier statements to a room full of GOP delegates at the was at the Republican Party's annual convention last Saturday, where he was booed for saying there's no pathway to decertifying the 2020 election. The number of people who can access broadband Internet in Wisconsin may be three times higher than previously estimated. That's according to new research from the Wisconsin Public Service Commission, which found that an estimated 1.3 million people in the state either don't have access to or can't afford broadband internet. That new number from the state is three times higher than estimated by the federal government. A previous report generated by the Federal Communications Commission calculated that about 400,000 people across the state had difficulty getting online. That study from the feds relied on a mapping system that underestimated gaps in coverage, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The owners of a Lake Michigan passenger steamship say they're looking to trade out coal for an alternative fuel source. Now that's according to the Wisconsin State Journal, which reports that the insides of the SS Badger, which can hold up to 600 passengers and 180 vehicles when it departs to Michigan from Manitowoc, Wisconsin, might get an update soon. The ship was built in the 1950s, and in 2016, it became a National Historic Landmark. A spokesperson for the Michigan or the Lake Michigan Car Ferry, which owns the ship, says they're planning to swap out coal in favor of another power source soon, but they haven't made any firm decisions yet. High schoolers at several Madison high schools are planning to walk out of school tomorrow in support of a push for better staff wages. Tomorrow's rally to defend our schools comes after a eight um comes after a rally by MMSD staff outside the school administrative building on Monday. It comes amidst a push by MTI, the Madison Teachers Union, for an increase in wages as the district leaders begin to look ahead at the next budget. 
Specifically, the union is asking for a $5 increase in educational and security assistance salaries, a 4.7% cost of living increase, an increase in annual salaries for teachers, and an increase in substitute teacher pay to keep pace with teacher salaries. And the Madison Plan Commission has unanimously approved a developer's proposal to build a six-story building in downtown Madison on West Washington Avenue. The W-shaped building will hold about 140 apartments, reports the Wisconsin State Journal, and it's a part of a broader plan to build Mifflandia, a special development project between Mifflin and Bassett Streets. And now on to today's top stories. The Wisconsin Supreme Court is weighing the future of absentee ballot drop boxes and whether they're a valid voting method. Voting rights advocates say the court's decisions could have serious long-term impacts on Wisconsinites with disabilities. Jonah Chester with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. The Wisconsin Supreme Court will soon hand down a decision on whether absentee ballot drop boxes are permitted under state law. Ahead of that decision, voting rights advocates are highlighting the importance of the drop boxes and why they're an essential route to cast a ballot. Anita Johnson, with Souls to the Poll, said at a news conference Wednesday that permanently removing the drop boxes is effectively voter suppression. This was very convenient and an easy way for senior citizens and people with disabilities to make sure that their ballots were in a safe and secure place and that their vote was counted. Republican lawmakers argue the drop boxes are essentially ballot harvesting and they're not explicitly permitted under state law. But with permission and guidance from the state's bipartisan elections commission, hundreds of drop boxes were used in communities across the state during the 2020 presidential election without major issues. In January, a Waukesha County Circuit Court held the Elections Commission had overstepped its bounds in permitting the drop boxes and they weren't allowed under state law. That decision also determined the person casting the ballot must be the one to submit it or mail it, and no unauthorized third party can handle their ballot. For Milwaukee resident Martha Chambers, who lost the use of her arms and legs after a horseback riding accident, that's an essentially insurmountable hurdle. So for this new barrier that the Waukesha Circuit Court has put upon us, it is possible for me to, to vote. So they have taken my right to vote away from me. The American Association of People with Disabilities estimates that nearly a quarter of the national electorate in 2020, or about 35 million individuals, were people with disabilities. Meanwhile, the federal government estimates that about 977,000 Wisconsinites are disabled. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Through the pandemic, changing sales, trends, and locations, record stores are trying to adapt. WORT producer Heron Splinter spent the afternoon talking with some local record shops today and found some were thriving while others have plans to regroup. Here's his report. Steve Manley is the owner of B-Side Records, which has resided on State Street for decades. Um, I have no complaints. I mean, I've seen 
so many businesses get crushed by all that, and we've been able to hang on, and we're doing okay. Manley is also planning to move his business up the street after being displaced by a plan to build a mixed-use development. While those plans haven't been finalized, Manley decided to move anyway. I went through the, the early stage of being upset about potentially getting kicked out of a spot we've been at for 40 years almost, uh, to being kind of excited to start our next chapter in a, in a bigger space, but also nearby so that it, we won't be too hard to find. I asked about what would be changing in B-Side. We're going to expand our inventory and, um, and probably sell more music-related items, posters and T-shirts and maybe a little bit more uh, hi-fi gear, stuff like that. Evan Woodward is the manager of Strictly Discs on Monroe Street on Madison's west side. He says that not only did the store weather the pandemic, they saw a resurged interest in physical music. We've really seen... I would say like a pretty significant pickup in kind of a newer clientele, folks who haven't really been going to record stores for years and years and years and are just kind of getting into the world of it. So we've kind of emerged from the COVID times with seemingly a much bigger audience or a much bigger clientele, I guess. Dave Zero owns Madison Music Exchange. He says things keep changing. The actual physical music industry is is always evolving. There's quite a few more people buying LPs now than there have been in the previous 30 years, and um, that's great. There's just more interest, more interest in hanging out with your music and enjoying it. Not all record shops made it through the pandemic, though some that are closing may be staying around in some form. At the end of April, Sugar Shack Records on Atwood Avenue closed its doors after more than 40 years. Owner Gary Feast tells other media outlets that plans are in place for one of the store's employees to start a new record store of her own using some of Sugar Shack's catalog. And earlier this spring, the exclusive company, a small chain of record shops throughout southern Wisconsin, announced it was closing its doors, with plans for at least the Milwaukee location to stay alive under new ownership from Lilliput Records. Lilliput Records, the whole goal is to be very community-based, working with a lot of local businesses, artists, musicians. Uh, We'd like to bring back having more bands play local and and larger than that. We don't have a specific open date. We're like thinking it'll be around mid-July. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter. Isthmus senior reporter Dylan Brogan attended the Republican Party of Wisconsin's annual convention this weekend. The convention featured a lot of political jockeying between the GOP candidates for governor. For more, WORT producer Heron Splinter spoke with Brogan earlier today. I'm speaking today with Dylan Brogan, senior staff writer at Isthmus Newspaper. We're talking about his article titled, Rebecca Clayfish's Gamble for Governor. It deals with the proceedings of the annual GOP convention in Middleton last Saturday. Dylan, thanks so much for joining me in the studio today. No problem. Could you tell me, what does the GOP decide at this convention? Well, uh, it's it's actually a very interesting event. So you have county parties, 72 of them, all over the state, right? And so they all send delegates. Um, this year was in Middleton, but it can be all over the state. 
And the big question this year was whether they were going to give an endorsement in this crowded uh, primary race for governor, right? We have a bunch of candidates, four who are doing quite well, but there was five at the convention and kind of a dark horse one that was uh, also lobbying for the endorsement. And so the question was, uh, is the party going to unite behind uh, one of these candidates or not? How that worked out was we had the former lieutenant governor, Rebecca Clayfish. She was working real hard to get that official endorsement from the party, right? And why is that important? Because that would allow her to start using the Republican Party of Wisconsin's resources and potentially even to um, campaign against other Republicans who are competing in this primary. So Rebecca Clayfish really worked hard to get it. She came darn close, but it ended up the, the state party delegates decided to endorse no candidate at all, which is what the other front runners wanted. So what does this lack of endorsements mean for the big races for governor and Congress? Yeah, yeah. well, in particular, the, uh, so they did, you know, they, the party did endorse um, uh, incumbent U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, right? So the party, the state party, they can start using their infrastructure and, and resources to help his campaign out. But there's no one, there's no um, Republican opposition or he doesn't have a, Ron Johnson doesn't have a primary opponent in the race for governor. Uh, we have uh, four candidates that are, um, you know, polling you know pretty well, and it's kind of a heated race. Like I mentioned, we got Clayfish, the former lieutenant governor, and then we have uh, Kevin Nicholson, who uh, ran once for for U.S. Senate in 2018, and he didn't win. And then we have Tim Michaels, who ran against Russ Feingold in 2004. Four, I believe. Yeah, 2004. And he also didn't do well. But both have, um, Tim Michaels is very wealthy construction magnet. Uh, and Kevin Michelson has is not, not a poor man himself, but he also has the backing of some really big GOP mega donors. And the fourth candidate uh, is a state representative, and his name is Timothy Ramthoon. And he is a very interesting figure because he's kind of people in the Trump base of the party really like him. And he's even um, gone after Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, right? He's arguably the most powerful Republican in the whole state. Um, but he thinks that he, he's putting out conspiracy theories about the 2020 election that even Robin Voss is involved in the supposed um, you know, s stealing of the election. So he's an interesting figure in, in that right. So you have those four people and uh, Nicholson and Ranthoon and um, Michaels were really lobbying hard not to get the endorsement, but to keep Rebecca Clayfish from getting an endorsement. And they were successful. Um, and it's interesting and a little bit of, you know, insider baseball here. But the reason why this is important is that Tim Michaels is pouring a lot of, of his own money into this campaign. Uh, and he has lots of money to spend. Uh, and he jumped in the race late in April. And it, a lot of operatives and a lot of people who are familiar with the back and forth and the, the behind the scenes told me at the convention that uh, is Michaels or Nicholson uh, going to start campaigning really negative against Rebecca Clayfish. And that might be a huge problem for her. So she was trying to stem that off by getting the seal of appro approval from the party at the convention. And and now it looks like it's going to be, um, you know, a, a, a battle for uh, between the Republicans um, until the until the primary. Between the candidates and the delegates, who did you run into that the convention? 
Um, a lot, lots of, um, you know, there was the, it's really, um, the Republican party faithful there. So there was certainly, uh, it's hard to say that it's the GOP base, right? No, these are people involved in the county parties and, um, you know, some of them are more right wing and more moderate than the others, but, um, they're all very loyal Republicans. Um, so in a way though, uh, you know, the Republicans are very concerned about party insiders, right? Uh, and Rebecca Clayfish kind of the reason why I, you know, I use the word uh, uh, Rebecca Clayfish's gamble for governor in the headline was now she sort of uh, cast herself as the establishment figure in this race that maybe can be used by other Republicans to run against her. Like, oh, I'm a true outsider. You know, that Trump successfully did that very well. Right. When he ran in 2016. Um, but not only so by going after the party's endorsement and, you know, whipping votes and getting her good buddy Scott Walker to help her out. Uh, she's the establishment candidate. But now she doesn't have those establishment resources that she really was trying hard to get by getting the party's endorsement. And she got 55 percent of support from the Republican delegates at the convention. But she needed 60 percent in order to get that endorsement and all the resources that come with it. Do you see her pivoting here? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I, I just think she was trying to sew up the race right then and there and, uh, you know, kind of solidify her front runner status. And now it looks like she's going to, you know, face at least one, probably two um, opponents uh, who are maybe going to go after her pretty hard and, and get negative before, um, you know, whoever Republican wins uh, runs against Tony Evers. And both parties have these concerns, right, when they have c contested primary elections. Look at what happened to Republican Governor Tommy Thompson in 2012, right? The party didn't endorse him when he ran for U.S. Senate in 2012, uh, and he had a very negative primary um, race. So he spent a lot of money just getting through the primary, and he got beat up by his own party's members. So then, you know, Tammy Baldwin was running, too, and she didn't, she didn't have all that criticism from other Democrats and stuff. So when it came to the general, Tommy Thompson, um, a lot of people say he really suffered because of that primary because Tammy ended, ended up winning very handily. Now, it wasn't just because Tommy Thompson had a hard primary race, but it certainly didn't help his prospects. How did this convention set the stage for the upcoming August primary? Um, it, it, well, it set the stage in the sense that we're going to have a really competitive Republican primary for governor. And if Clayfish would have maybe gotten that 60%, I think it's safe to say um, it. she probably would have gotten through it less uh, unscathed. But okay. who knows? Because, I mean, the people I was talking to who uh, are saying Tim Michaels, um, who, like I said, owns Michaels um, Construction, he's got a lot of money, uh, some people are saying he's pouring a million dollars a week into in campaign ads of his own money. Now, I think a million dollars a week is a little bit high of a figure, but he's certainly going to pour in millions of his own money. And so the big question is, is he going to start going after Clayfish? Because so far he hasn't. Picking candidates wasn't the only part of the convention, though. Uh, they also decided on policies and planks and Assembly Speaker Robin Vos got booed. Tell me more. He got booed, yes. Um, and, and early on the day on Saturday, um, Robin Voss said uh, what every legal and expert is saying, that you can't decertify the 2020 election, that it's done. Uh, he, there's no legal mechanism to overturn that election here in Wisconsin. And, you know, he, he said that, and he got booed. And then, as part of their party plank, they even took a, a vote 
about whether they think he should be removed as speaker. And he, um, about a third of the Republicans at the convention wanted him out as speaker, but he survived that too. So he's an interesting figure in that he's willing to kind of put Republicans in line in terms of the election conspiracies floating around. But there is a lot of, I mean, Republicans do not think it, like I would say it's charitable to, uh, to say that they don't think it was fair in 2020. And some of them think it was outright stolen. Now, is there evidence of that? No. Have people looked into this in a million different ways? Yes. Has there been lawsuits? Yes. But there's just no convincing some people. They think it was stolen and that's that. What kind of feedback, if any, did you get on your write-up? And can you talk about the Democratic response? I didn't, well, um, I'm not sure how Democrats feel about it, but I imagine they're pretty happy because, you know, they don't want to see a strong Rebecca Clayfish heading into the general. And Tony Evers is an incumbent, but, um, you know, he has had to grapple with a Republican legislature that has very deliberately tried to deny him any sort of policy success. So he's vetoed more bills than any other governor in history, and, and the Republicans just um, have put up bills that – solely to make him, you know, for attack ads later in the campaign. So, uh, you know, uh, history would tell you that it's going to be a good year for Republicans. And But Tony Evers is also a unique Democrat in that he still seems to be rather popular and have an okay approval rating, considering it's a midterm election and we have a Democratic president. And that's a lot of times how, um, you know, wave elections happen in either way. I've been speaking with Dylan Brogan a reporter for the Isthmus, and a producer here at WORT. He recently attended the Republican Party of Wisconsin's annual convention in Middleton, where the party did not choose a gubernatorial candidate to endorse. His article, titled, Rebecca Clayfish's Gamble for Governor, can be found on isthmus.com. Dylan, thank you. Thank you. Every other Thursday, our producer Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government for a segment we call Transparency Talk. In this episode, Kamenick and Chester discuss government subcontractors, those private companies or individuals who do work for the government, and how Wisconsin's open records laws apply to them. Now, a quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? Holding on and holding up. Holding on and holding up. I think that is the best any of us can hope for. We had an interesting topic here we're going to cover today, though, that'll hopefully brighten everybody's day up. Uh, you know, it's interesting to those of us who are open government nerds. We're talking about can the government hide records by having third parties retain them? No, this issue was actually foreseen by the authors of our open records law, and it is expressly prohibited. They can't hide records by sending them to a third party to be retained. So we've got a statute, and I'll actually read the whole thing because it's fairly straightforward. It says, each authority shall make available for inspection and copying any record produced or collected under a contract entered into by the authority with a person other than an authority to the same extent as if the record were maintained by the authority. I said the word authority a lot in there. Authority means the government entity. So what it's saying is that 
whenever there's a contract between the government and a private third party, all the records related to that contract are subject to the open records law. Not necessarily all of that third party's records, but only records that are related to that government contract. So you know, if, if your local county hires a law firm, law firm records related to that contract are subject to the open records law, but not the law firm's other records for other clients. Mm -hmm. And I think we should clarify when we say third parties, we mean like government contractors, like people, private corporations or private entities who enter into like an agreement with the government to carry out a certain task, either the government can't themselves carry out or the government deems this person is better at carrying out this task than we are. These might be uh, medical facilities. They might be food vendors at a uh, you know a government-owned facility that has private food vendors in it. It might be uh, uh, contracts with law firms. It's important here to realize under the statute that responding is the authority's responsibility. It's the government's responsibility. So that means your request needs to go to the government, not to the contractor. And if you need to file a lawsuit, you need to file a lawsuit against the government, not against the contractor. So what's the fee situation look like here if you're filing with the government for that contractor-related information? So once in a while, I, I get a, a fee, a, somebody trying to charge a fee, and they're saying, well, you know, our policy as a third-party contractor is we charge 50 cents a page for all photocopies. But the law actually says that those third-party contractors can only charge you their actual necessary and direct costs which is for reproduction, which is the same as the government entity itself. So the government entity can't get around the fee limitation by contracting with a third party either. So they, they can't. They can't pick like an arbitrary number, basically, to say like records cost this much because it's profitable to us because we're a for-profit business, basically. Yeah, even if they're using a private uh, photocopy company like your local Kinko's or whatever, uh, they can't bake their profit into what they're charging. They have to charge their actual costs. Since the records in a lot of these cases aren't in possession of the actual government itself, what happens if the contractor refuses to turn them over? And this is a this is actually a question that involves who may be Wisconsin's most famous government contractor, although that's not a very crowded field for competition. Uh, so so what happens in that case, Tom? It's a little unclear exactly how that shakes up. So remember what I said earlier, that the responsibility is the government's, uh, not the contractor's necessarily. So the failure to produce the records falls on the government. They can be sued. They can be ordered to turn over the the records and to pay your attorney's fees. Uh, but what if the contractor says, no, these records are in my possession, I'm not going to turn them over. Uh, you might be able to get punitive damages against the government because it's their responsibility and they're not fulfilling it. Or you may be able to get a contempt order holding them in contempt of court if they don't turn it over. And as you were alluding to, this is very similar to the issue going on right now with Gableman and Robin Voss in the assembly. The, uh, one of those cases has this issue because one of the cases Voss was sued and named in the lawsuit, but not Gableman. And that lawsuit is saying, well, Gableman is, is being hired by the assembly and that makes him a contractor. He, and it, Voss is turning that back around and saying, well, yeah, uh, I don't have the records. Gableman has the records. He's my contractor, but I can't make Gableman turn over these records. You know, I'm not 
his boss is, is basically what they're saying. But really, the contractor is working for you if you hire the contractor. You know, why are you paying this person or this company if they're not following your directions and doing what you lawfully need them legally or required to have them do? You know, you can tell them you have to turn this over. And if they don't do it, at the very least, fire them. So could could the court order Gableman who, you know, if you if you don't know who Michael Gableman is by this point, quick 10 second story on Michael Gableman hired by Robin Voss, uh, State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, to conduct a review of the 2020 elections, spring and presidential November primaries, all that jazz. It's been in the headlines a lot. Just Google the guy's name. You'll get all the background you need if you don't already have it anyway. I digress. So could the court order Gableman to turn over his records from this investigation directly? Now, here, this is a question of what's a court's power. And a, a court doesn't have the power to order somebody who's not a party in front of them in the lawsuit to do something. Uh, it's They have to actually be under the jurisdiction of the court, which means they need to be a named party. And it's it's kind of unclear what happens if, if that contractor is not named in the lawsuit. And it's not even clear you can name the contractor in the lawsuit because it's not their legal responsibility. Uh, even the records retention laws which are kind of loosely related to the records request laws, don't seem to apply directly to contractors. So th this is all uncertain and um, undetermined issues in the law right now. Well, you know, I love to leave these uh, these episodes on uh, ambiguous points mark, and yeah. <laughs> big question marks. As we've learned in the like roughly past, what, what, year and a half, two years of doing this now, I've lost track. A lot of uh, records law is one big question mark. So we'll leave it there for today. Uh, I've been joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks for taking time out of your week to chat with me. It's always a pleasure, Jonah. And I just checked. It looked like September of 2020, maybe uh, August of 2020 was the very first transparency talk. So remember, everybody, if you don't ask, you won't know. Madison is known for some of its excellent malt-forward beer styles. And this week on our beer feature, Fermenting Wort, contributor Colin Morgan describes how malt is made and where some of its famous flavor comes from. This is Fermenting Wort. I'm your host, Colin Morgan. Casual beer drinkers usually know a couple of buzzwords, to throw around when attempting to describe what they are tasting. Beers are quote-unquote hoppy or crisp. Maybe they go down smooth, whatever that means. I found that once most beer drinkers get to a certain point in their tasting careers, they learn the word malty. And many people like to say that they prefer malty beers. But what is that word really describing? What would make a beer malty, and why do many people seem to like it? So a couple of weeks ago, I described the basics of what malt is, but I'm going to do it again because I like talking about beer and brewing, and I think that some people actually like listening as well. So beer is an agricultural product. That is one of the reasons I think that some people are so fascinated by it, because it is a natural process. And the product of beer is intricately woven into the fabric of humanity and civilization itself. Depending on who you ask, beer is actually either the main reason for the agricultural revolution across the Eastern world, or at the very least an important reason why that change from nomadism to agriculture was sustained. 
The vast majority of beer as we know it today is made up of those four famous ingredients, water, malt, hops, and yeast. To reiterate basically how beer is made, malt provides a source of sugar that is dissolved in the water to be eaten by the yeast. The microorganism yeast ferments the sugar, creating byproducts of alcohol and gaseous carbon dioxide, bubbly bubbles. Brewers then season the fermented beer with hops. Malt today is mostly made from the barley grass, but across time and different areas in the world, different sources of sugar for indigenous brews have come from a multitude of different sources. I said earlier that across the Eastern world, the agricultural revolution was born from the desire to create beer, or perhaps beer's less fun cousin, bread. In order to make both of those things, you need yeast and a source of sugar to feed the yeast. In the ancient Middle East, that source of sugar was the ancestor of barley. In the further eastern reaches of Asia, it was probably an ancestor of modern-day rice varieties. But all of the probable ancestors of current sugar and starch sources were grasses. That seems wild to me. Even here in the Americas, indigenous people were using ancient corn grasses, it is a grass, to make simple breads and fermented drinks. Kind of makes you think, who is cultivating who? Did the people grow the grasses, or did the grasses grow the people? Anyway, grasses usually have a source of starch. Many plants use starch as an energy storage molecule, kind of like how we store fat as a future energy source. Grasses use their starch to store energy for their offspring or for themselves in the future. But we don't usually, hopefully, talk about beer as being starchy. Well, maybe some current styles are a little more starchy than others. I'm looking at you, hazy IPA. But I digress. This is where malt comes into play. Malting is the process of taking those starchy barley seeds and converting them into a more usable and accessible form of starch for brewing. So maltsters allow the barley seeds to grow just a little bit, nurturing them and caring for them like they would their own children. The barley seed starts to act like they would in the wild and starts mobilizing resources from their energy stores in order to grow a new barley plant. Those caring maltsters check in on their growing adopted orphans every once in a while, carefully turning them to make them more comfortable. And once their beautiful children have broken down some of their more difficult-to-digest proteins surrounding the tender starch, those once kind and caring monsters slowly kill those innocent barley seeds by roasting them alive. How very cruel. In all realness, though, the breakdown of this protein matrix surrounding the starch molecules allows brewers to access the starchy starch and use a little brewing magic to make sugar. This is essentially the malting process. I mentioned in an earlier episode about how after drying this now green malt, maltsters kiln or roast the seeds to varying degrees of color. This is where malt flavor comes from. Typically, it seems when people describe a beer as malty, they are recognizing some of those roasty or darker toast-like flavors and aromas as a distinctly malty character. This makes a lot of sense. Pretty much all beers have malt in them, 
But the amount and types of kilns or roasted malts dictate what the perceived malty character is. For example, a Czech-style pilsner undoubtedly has a malty character, but the balance of malt and Czech hops give a more rounded impression. Usually, this means that the perception of a true Czech pils is more of a medium-bodied, slightly bitter beer with a distinct hop punch. The same can be said for a typical West Coast-style IPA, the balance of which is more influenced by the hop character and aroma. Styles that focus on the perception of malt flavor, however, and aroma, typically contain more, you guessed it, malt. And the balance of hop and yeast character to malt character naturally favors the latter. This is why you might hear people describe big stouts as malty or malt-forward, or perhaps lighter English ales as having a malty complexity. The brewer designed the style and recipe to incorporate more or varied types of malt to create a more malt-forward profile. Typically, this is described as bready, maybe sweet, roasty, full-bodied, toffee-like, coffee-like, sometimes coffee, toffee, raisin bread. This all speaks a little more to how wonderfully complex the world of beer flavor really is. There are limitless combinations of those four ingredients, water, malt, yeast, and hops, to give limitless flavors and experiences. And that's why beer is enjoyed by so many people. There's a little something for everyone to enjoy. So next time you're at your favorite brewery, consider what types and how much malt goes into your favorite style. And perhaps the balance of your favorite beer is more influenced by malt or one of the other ingredients. Either way, it's kind of fun to think about what the brewer is trying to show you and how those ingredients are manipulated to create a different experience. Thanks for listening. For many of us, Ellis Deli on East Washington Avenue signaled our exit or return to Madison. The colorful circus-style restaurant, complete with merry-go-round, held space in our hearts and was a true icon. Ellis is gone, but the colorful whimsy returns thanks to Bill Rebholz. Tasked with creating a new facade for Ella, Rebholz gleaned inspiration from the community surrounding the new four-story apartment building. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, Repholtz tells contributor Jonathan Fields how he tackled such a huge project. Ellis Deli was a landmark in Madison for a very long time, very significant place um, that a lot of people, you know, have fond memories of or just memories of in general, and it's gone now. So what's left in its place is the, you know, well, they're, they're building something new, but what's what's left is what what was around it. So the inspiration kind of comes from the two kind of conjoining neighborhoods where it was. So, you know, the sense of place comes from what the kind of the makeup of the of the neighborhoods and and just the surroundings. So, you know, people, plants, their pets, animals, whatever, um, just kind of the vitality of the surroundings. So when you approach the building, Mm -hmm. when did you start thinking about it? When did you start 
conceptualizing what this what, what you wanted to see on that building. It's kind of a crazy process because there was so many um, hands in it. Uh, there's the people who are actually like developing the building and then there's the community and then there's kind of my artistic vision and the people doing the development really wanted some level of input from the people who will be kind of seeing it on a daily basis. And then obviously they wanted to really employ my vision, uh, however you want to define that. And for me, it's sort of, like I say, just, my interest in character, a character being like people, but also just kind of how you define your sense of space. So I also used my kind of upbringing in Madison as the defining thing within the, the imagery and just kind of calling upon how I saw the world through growing up here. Once you've got all that done mm -hmm. and you finally get yourself to the building and you're working on it. Mm -hmm. Is there any conversation left? Is there any conversation with you left between the building and what your intent is? Does the building also start informing you about what works where and how it's gonna all come together in the end? A lot of it is done up front, but um, you still have to kind of react to the physical space. Like all of the imagery was for sure there. I kind of had a sense of I mean, I made a, a whole drawing and had a sense of what I was going to do, but like every project in place, especially when you're doing exterior or even interior mural work is a little bit different and there's a little bit of impromptu planning. So like I started out the process by myself. Um, I, have, I have help ultimately from my friend Eddie Perot, um, but I had to kind of figure out how I was going to get the artwork on the wall and, you know... Um, they provided me with an, a scaled elevation with a one-foot grid overlaid on top of my artwork so I could kind of literally draw coordinates on the wall. Um, but, you know, in construction, things get a little skewed and everything, so there was still some things I was kind of tweaking as I was um, drawing it on the wall. And then, you know, once we're actually laying paint on the wall, we're, we're still kind of what I call, like, finding shapes and lines and things so um it's it's kind of this slow moving refinement i guess i'd say like a like a slow dance yes exactly yeah <laughs> yeah exactly totally slow dance so then when you're up there and you're working because that building is enormous how do you maintain that slow dance when you have this daunting task ahead of you that's really funny it's funny you you ask that because um, Eddie and I talk about that pretty much daily. It's uh, we you're up there and you're working on a you know four foot by four foot uh, segment of this wall that I think I did the math and it's somewhere around like thirty two hundred square feet, and you're you're painting and you know you're kind of paint four four feet by four feet. If you're talking about just a painting you're hanging in your house is a decent sized piece of canvas, whatever. It, that feels like like nothing, like scribbling a note on the scale of this building. So we feel we constantly feel like we're doing nothing all day, but then once you actually get down from the lift and you look up, it's like, oh, 
the thing is coming together. That's wild, you know? It's it's strange. It's really strange. Uh, That's interesting that you... I like the comparison to a, like a four-foot, like the scribble on a paper as opposed to this giant, giant building. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is sort of uh, strange and surreal. Like, you don't feel like you're doing much, but then in actuality, the outcome is you've painted a four-story building. Well, How would you describe your work? Well, so... I have a background in sign painting and, you know, I, I have like um, traditional kind of schooling in graphic design and I went to college for illustration. So kind of like those sort of businessy sort of things. But um, I taught myself how to do sign painting and I ultimately worked with two sign painters um, in Minneapolis, not quite in a traditional apprentice apprentice sort of structure but not dissimilar um but what i love about sign painting it is um you know it's a business it's a thing that you could make money off of but it's something that's also very personable it's it's paint but and it's still painting you know um it's helping small businesses and it's um very humanistic and that humanistic hand is something that i've always wanted to make sure comes through in what i do even though I would say that my work is relatively refined, right? So it's important to you. We call that, one of the things we call that in material culture is like the hand of the maker. And it's sure. always important for me to see the hand of the maker because it does, it humanizes that work. It makes it accessible. Yeah, and I mean, it. that's really important to me. I mean, one of my uh, idols, artistic idols, is um, Margaret Kilgallen. She's somebody who um, I think employed all of the that, perfectly in my opinion and um like similarly i have a i have a huge interest in folk art just generally i think i, I don't know if you would call my my artwork folk art necessarily but i it, it definitely pays like a large homage to it so yeah it's interesting that you you in your work you're paying an homage to folk art but you've been tasked with reimagining an icon does that weigh heavy on you um Yes, and, yes, and no. Um, I I don't want to sound blasé and say it's not something that I really, like really considered because, you know, obviously I'm aware of it. Um, but I, I just hope to make something that resonates with people broadly. I guess in the same way that you know, Ella's set out to make something for everybody and. You kind of just don't know how it's received until it it is, and um, you know I'm not I'm not saying like I'm replacing that spirit, but um, I, I hope that ultimately it can live up to a similar sort of spirit, similar um, but u- unique in its own right, if that makes sense. Will this painting, this work over time, weather like the traditional old? sign building paintings that we've seen um i i believe it will i hope it does that's that's my that's my hope you know that it just takes on its natural form of time for w-o-r-t i'm jonathan fields and that's does it for our show thanks for listening to w-o-r-t's 
live local news at six. Special welcome to our new reporter, Alistair Rice. Special thanks also to feature contributors, Colin Morgan, Jonah Chester, Tom Kamenick, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered tonight's show. Heron Splinter produced the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Also, shout out to fellow host, Marcus Slayton. Uh, hey, remember, you can find WORT's local news on your favorite podcast app. Subscribe and never miss an episode of the news and interviews that matter most to your community. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. With me. W-O-R-T, Madison.